Hello, sweet dogs. We are new to who? Whether you don't know the old or only the new, we are the chaps with suggestions for you. I'm Stephen. I'm Dan. And I'm Eric. Hey. 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 Welcome, Eric Indeed. Stadnick. <laughs> <laughs> we got Eric Stadnick on this month uh, from Doctor Who, The Writer's Room and the uh, Classic Horror Cast. Eric, I've been a long time fan of Doctor Who, The Writer's Room. But maybe for our other sweet dogs who haven't perhaps heard the podcast before, do you want to give us a brief rundown of what it is that you do? Sure. Uh, Doctor Who the Writer's Room is a podcast I am the co-host of with Kyle Anderson of uh, of The Nerdist, among other things. And essentially, it's the show where we look at the first 26 years of Doctor Who through the writers and the stories they wrote, as Kyle says at the beginning of every episode. <laughs> so essentially, it's a, it's a very writer-focused um, I'm like most other podcasts, it's very, we really stay focused on that remit. Uh, I'm not saying other podcasts wander, but like we don't, we really talk about acting or directing or set design or any of that sort of thing. We instead very much look at the script process and, and the writing of the stories and sort of how the various characters are portrayed, plotting, blah, 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 and mm. try to sort of extract from those scripts um the various preoccupations or themes that writers bring to the show uh doctor who more than most other shows is very much a writer driven show each writer Mm, brings something different and unique and so we thought that would be a good way to sort of look at classic doctor who especially and um and think about why you know why different time periods why different stories are different from each other and it's about the writer Lovely. Sounds great. Yeah, it really is a favourite of mine. I particularly love the focus on, I guess, the mechanics of the narrative and how all of that um, fits together much more so than maybe the uh, the production side, which is also something that's uh, of interest to me. But yeah, primarily, as you say, Doctor Who has always been like a writerly medium for me. You know, I mm. learnt, uh, sort of come to, came to it through the uh, the Target book. So me too. Yeah. Well, all those years where where I didn't, I couldn't get it on VHS. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just got it through through books in the library. So. It, and you know, in that form, it's really about the story itself that comes to the fore so yeah a real favorite of mine doctor who the writer's room if you haven't our sweet dorks check that out please do so thank you you're most kind (laughs) (laughs) eric you're you're in prague tell us a bit more about this uh prague is a city in europe uh it's the capital (laughs) of the czech republic no i uh so i'm an american as you can tell by the accent but i moved a few months ago from uh washington dc to prague and i now teach english here in prague it's sort of the next great adventure of life Something I've always wanted to do, maybe one day. <laughs> you just um, do it. You really just do it. <laughs> yeah, you just got to get up and go, right? Um, and I think we ask all of our guests and um, oh, yeah. fellow podcasters, um, how is it that you came to Doctor Who? What's your story with, in terms of your uh, introduction to Doctor Who? So there's, there's a tiny bit of sort of like a prologue, maybe, which is that when I was growing up, um, so I'm approaching 40 rapidly, uh, like, a, like a train with no... St- air breaks um and so when i was young uh, uh doctor who was airing on pbs the public broadcasting service mm-hmm. in america my parents watched it but and i sort of had some lingering memories of the fact that the show existed but it's about where it stopped i didn't watch it as i was growing up i did watch the tv movie for reasons i still can't fully explain to myself <laughs> uh, because it wasn't a thing i did and so i why well, i decided to watch the tv movie by myself you know unbidden is sort of bizarre but then it wasn't until the series came back and it was very even even in the sort of mid 2000s it was still not uncommon for american pbs stations to show the classic series oh. often mm. in weird time slots and so i would occasionally 
if Saturday Night Live, so like midnight on Saturday, wasn't very funny, or and if I was home, um, <laughs> I would often be flipping through the channels, and the PBS station would often be showing old black and white uh, Doctor Who stories, and I never stopped to watch them. I sort of had this idea that it was a terrible old show, whatever, and I didn't, I never stopped. <laughs> um, and then, and then one night I was flipping through, and around the same time I saw this very glossy looking British drama show or British sci-fi show of some kind um, and a few moments in I, I realized it was clearly Doctor Who I think I, either I saw the TARDIS or someone called him Doctor or something and I was like they're making new ones apparently and it was actually the episode End of the World so the second episode uh, of Royal Wisdom um, and the moment I realized this was the show I was going to love was actually when Britney Spears Toxic played <laughs> I remember that. I remember that. And, and it's just really, it's just really funny, great music, you know, drop, and all this sort of crazy stuffs happening. And I was like, okay, this is, this is a thing now, apparently. And I quickly, with, I mean, within a span of a year, I went from I don't watch this show to you know I'm listening to every podcast, and I'm not long after <laughs> started podcasting, and like every, it, it was a very rapid descent um, into utter madness. And then I sort of went back and packed up the classic, picked up the classic series. Um, as they became released on DVD and as they became available on Netflix initially, and then oh. I started buying them all. And so it was this sort of, um, the groundwork had been laid in my childhood, but you know, I was in my 30s before I actually uh, went whole hog into Doctor Who. So I think I come at it from a different perspective than many other like classic series fans. Um, so, and you got to pick and choose when you started watching seriously. I did, although the number of DVDs that were available was actually somewhat limited. Um, but I think my first classic DVD that I like procured one way or another and watched was probably The Five Doctors. Hmm, the first uh, DVD release of the range, right? It was. Yeah, it was. The, the, the initial version, when they did the anniversary version or the special edition, whatever it was. Um, <laughs> but I think I probably just got that to sort of see where I might want to go after that, if that makes any mm-hmm. sense. It yeah. Sort of give yeah. me a sense of what I liked. So, yeah. And then after that, I honestly don't remember. And I sort of watched everything that was available and then waited for the new ones to come out. That's great. So The Five Doctors and Peter Davison was essentially your first classic foray? Um, officially, yeah. I, mm. I, like I said, I'd seen, I'm sure I'd seen snippets, but actually the snippet I remembered seeing was actually from The Five Doctors. So that may have been another reason I went back to it. Oh, I, I, I had this vague memory of there being a show when I was a kid that I had seen where there was like a castle or something and there was a bunch of different guys but they were all the same person and they're all wandering around trying to meet each other i was like oh that's a really good sum up of the what it is (laughs) right and so i got older i'm like oh that was the five doctors i had a you know vestigial memory of from when i was four or whatever but i but the davison era never really became uh my one true love uh and so i found i found myself moving more towards other areas of the show just sort of naturally Hmm. And where did you settle? If you, if you could, if you sort of, if uh, uh, we, we always say that you know, we started with this doctor or that doctor, and that's that's our doctor or something like that. But yeah. where did you find yourself settling most at the start? Uh, I would say my first sort of real proper settle area that I had stayed in was the Seventh Doctor era, um, for a variety of reasons. The McCoy era sort of spoke to me and um and i think it may have also just been it was more i think more of their stories may have been available more readily at the time mm. i'm not sure yeah. someone someone who knows the exact dvd releases of all the um the dates for all those would probably be able to correct me but that seemed the case at the time that more of those stories were available 
Um, and then, and then once sort of more is available, I found myself gravitating more towards the Hartnell and Troughton eras, especially Hartnell. Ah, ah lovely. Yeah, right. Wow. So they're, they're so different. Like I've always found the McCoy because I'm was like a little kid in the eighties. I found that McCoy stories and the pacing of that kind of show that they made then it's a, it's a lot easier to get into. It's like when you watch sixties and seventies, Dr. Who's, you've got to sort of put your mind back there and put it in context because they, they move a lot slower. That's and true. the Hartnell stuff is the earliest stuff, and that's the most sort of different to the sort of TV that you watch now. It's harder to harder to get your mind in that slot, but still really rewarding. Yeah, no, I think I think that's true, and I, I you know it's why I when people ask me where to start with classic Doctor Who, I rarely tell them um, just watch all of Hartnell. I might tell them to watch the first Hartnell story or at least the first episode, but I rarely tell them just go straight through because I think it is. It's a, it's a significant jolt, I think, for a modern viewer to go so and watch true. something that yeah. has seven parts and moves quite slowly and has a lot of <laughs> running around for no reason like the Daleks does. So, Well, um, speaking of seven parts... Uh, exactly. Probably, I, I did say that on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're deep into this now. Maybe we should actually talk about the episode we're gonna, the story we're going to talk about. And it's uh, Inferno. Burn, baby, burn. <laughs> I had to do it once. I won't do it again. <laughs> please, please. <laughs> so we're looking at season seven of classic Doctor Who, the first John Pertwee story and Inferno being the fourth and last story of that season, um, widely regarded as an all-time classic of Doctor Who. I think it polls highly even to this day in you know the Doctor Who magazine. Uh, yeah, it's a fan favorite. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, no, it, uh, I was doing a little bit, of just a tiniest bit of research. And uh, I think according to the most recent, you know, massive Doctor Who magazine poll where they, you know, surveyed everyone and got favorites, uh, Inferno came in at number 31, um, mm. which is actually the mm. highest ranking part we story. Of all, of all of Doctor Who, so it's it's the favorite part we, but that still puts it in like outside the top twenty, well outside the top twenty, which is interesting to think about. Um, why more part we isn't higher on the list, considering there is a strong fan base for his for his work and for his time. Sure. But yeah, Inferno ranked uh, the highest of all the part we stories, which is funny because it's very unlike most part we stories. Yeah, that's so true, isn't yeah. it? Um, I think. Yeah, to, to sort of give our sweet dorks a bit of a, an intro into this, um, it's it's how would you describe it? It's kind of like a drilling project to the centre of the earth and uh, hmm. you know, it sort of releases this green toxic sludge that turns people into quasi-werewolves. <laughs> uh, and in the midst of all of this, the Doctor's flung into a parallel evil universe where Britain's actually a fascist state. And when you, have a, when you think about all of those things lining up, it's... It's the ingredients for a classic Doctor Who story are definitely there. But it's a crazy mishmash. Like, even, any one of those sort of things would probably be fine for a story, but they just decided to throw them all in together and make one mm. seven-part crazy, insane <laughs> story. It's great. Yeah, and that's, that's, and that's sort of like the genius of the combination of uh, Don Houghton, who wrote the script and who also wrote Mind of Evil the following season, um, combined with the sort of um, Terrence Stick's ability to keep a narrative moving and and have a he had a, by this point this was his you know second and a half year script editing kind of Terrence Sticks, and he had a really good sense of what would what would stretch to seven episodes and what wouldn't, um and and how to sort of make these longer stories still feel like they were worth watching and not just people running around for parts three and four, and so he, you know together they came up with this idea it, the initial pitch had been oh molehill project yeah there's this and and don Houghton has a sort of like weird conspiracy theory he's like you know the americans tried to do this and then they stopped <laughs> and the russians tried to drill the center and they stopped there must be something <laughs> down there um, and 
And what's fast, what's in a weird way, what's fascinating about that idea is they, you know, not to spoil anything, but in the script they never decide what's down there. They don't need yes. to know what's down there. Yeah, no, there's I mean, something I, that you don't want, and that's as far as you need to go. It's not like they awaken Cthulhu or something. <laughs> <laughs> I remember watching it for the first time and thinking, obviously something bad's going to come from the from the drilling, something's going to come up. But it never, yeah, at the end it's just uh, the destruction of the earth, and it's not very uh, specific about what it is. No, it, it and it doesn't need to be. It's sort of just yeah. one of these. There are barriers, and you shouldn't transgress them. Kind of. <laughs> so, so you have that plot line, which is just sort of uh, science pushing its boundaries beyond its natural limit. So that's that's a fine, perfectly valid Doctor Who story. Uh, then you have the monsters, which is sort of required, although maybe not most effective part of the story. <laughs> the primors, who are never called that in the story, by the way. I don't know when we all decided they were called primors. Maybe in a novelization. Yeah, I think it's I the think book, so, right? Yeah, because yeah, it's never they yeah. never say it in the show. Yeah. No, there's no reason for them to be like, oh, we should call them primords. Um, <laughs> and and then, but then, as you said, uh, Steve, I think it was you who said it, the, the, you have this whole parallel universe sort of chucked in. And that was the way Dix and Houghton together sort of decided to make this maybe not as meaty drilling story into a full-on seven-parter that would retain this sort of drama uh, throughout. And that, that, you know, that it's those sort of strokes of genius that happen along the, the entire run of classic Doctor Who and modern Doctor Who that sort of prevent it from being just another run-of-the-mill science fiction serial where everything is very predictable and instead create something, I think, just a little bit magical. Um, and that sort of ability to bounce back and forth that only really Doctor Who can do sort of easily between the different tones and the different places sort of seamlessly is really, uh, is really something. And so it's, it is this sort of combination of all these elements that comes together to create what is, you know, what is certainly one of the finest, I think, stories of the Pertwee era and arguably one of the finest stories Doctor Who's ever done. You're right. There is some magic, especially from considering that so many weird and clashing elements together, they're thrown together into this plot that should be all over the place, but it just seems to come together so well. It's really- yeah, and I think, uh, you know, we talked about Terence Dix uh, a number of times already on this podcast, and I keep saying that he's the man who maybe understands the mechanics of Doctor Who more than anyone else. I, 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 and, I, and this is another classic example of that. He, he, as you say, Eric, this was a, a pretty straightforward narrative uh, regarding it, the Mohol project as the inspiration Dix had a look at it and clearly realised that there wasn't seven parts worth of material here, and so we have the the ad, uh, you know the advent of the uh, the parallel world, which is just genius. Because if you think about it, it's not just the fact that it's seven parts and it's got to be padded out. There's actually something wonderful about having a, a parallel world. Uh, which essentially, as we see later on, is able to be destroyed. You know, the the stakes are, are high, and and uh, you know the, the destruction of that is something that couldn't have been achieved in, I suppose, the Earth back in the in the you know the normal Hooniverse. And we've got so we're, and we're dealing with a it's a pretty classic era. We've got Barry Letts as our producer, mm. paired with Terence Dix as a script editor, and they're such a great team. And I think they they are, really are. They're a big part of why the show continued was locked in for another for a lot longer. Is it Don, Don Horton, the writer? Mm-hmm. And they must have written it with Dix. Um, and that Mohol project is so weird, so interesting. They were trying to drill down through the Earth's crust to get to the mantle. Uh, and it, the, the Americans tried, they had funding from the National Science Foundation and they went to the bottom of the sea, three and a half kilometers down and were drilling. They drilled for about, God, I can't remember how far. I think it was about 10 years or so that they were drilling. And they yeah. eventually got to around about uh, 12,000 feet from yeah. memory. It's crazy. It's not even that far from where the, they almost made it. Yeah. <laughs> it's 
such a cool story inspiration. I wonder what stopped it. Yeah, well, it was, well, it was. I read that there was a shuffling around at the at the NSF, and then Congress didn't want to fund it anymore. Well, that's the, how the American one starts. That's the but, official version. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, I think that's actually, that's, but it's actually a tremendously valid question because I think in, um, like, if you don't know the story, you just know that it's a massive drilling project. And the first question is, well, why? Why are they yeah. drilling? And so it's really important that the story has Stallman, Professor Stallman, um, who, is, who is the scientific head of the project, um, mm. who has discovered something that is called Stallman's gas, that he is convinced... <laughs> Uh, yeah, you know, you name it after yourself. Of course you do. Uh, but he's convinced, and apparently with good reason, that if you can harness Stallman's gas, it would be a great energy source. And so it seems like it would be a sort of, it's almost a parallel for oil. It's this thing we could yeah. get out of the ground that would yeah. power, or natural gas for that matter, that would mm-hmm. power society. And we would be less dependent on uh, sort of other sources of energy and so this it almost feels like a mid to late 70s idea about new energy sources stuck yeah. in the middle of sort of the early 70s very early 70s is that where the energy crisis happened in america yeah sort of under president carter so like 75 76 77 yeah and it's been much more prominent as an issue ever since then but you know 1970 maybe i mean maybe there were concerns in britain about coal or something but it is it is this sort of idea that there is there's not just a scientific motive. There's a there's a profit motive. There's the theory is there's money to be had by doing this, and so it's not simply let's see what's down there. Is they have an idea of what's down there and how they can use it, and so that that creates actual tension within the story. Um, it's not one crazy scientist. It's a scientist who's eccentric and problematic, but who has a lot of people working for him who believe in his vision, including government resources uh, mm. represented by uh, Sir Sir Keith Gold. Um, oh, I love Sir Keith. Oh man, I love yeah, Sir Keith's wonderful. Um, but I mean, yeah, but this is this is not you know this is not some crazy guy in a mountain doing this on his own, and it's not. It's very it's a very high prominent project, high profile mm-hmm. project. And so when the doctor is there, if even at, especially at the beginning where he's just sort of like putzing around and and, and using their power, uh, using yeah, using their power and not contributing. And but sort of poo-pooing it at the same time, it, it's it's almost as if the doctor doesn't even know what. It's not as if it's clearly the doctor does not know what they're dealing with until it starts to become almost too late in a way, and people start dying. And but he's because he was never invested. The doctor is more willing to sort of try to stop it sooner, whereas other people have actual investments in this project: time, resources, money their own and their own belief of what can be harnessed through it and so that creates a nice dramatic tension it's not just a bunch of it's not just a bunch of people sort of willingly going to their death for some reason it's there's actual conflict um, which is probably best represented in the script at least by greg and petra sort of talking to each other and sort of allowing both sides of that conversation to be aired which is very nice and aren't they wonderful as the human face, I guess, of this mm. uh, of this narrative? So the director is it's Douglas Camfield, uh, who's definitely one of my favourites. We mentioned a long time ago, back in the Terror of the Zygons episode, that I think he's probably the greatest uh, classic Doctor Who producer. And brings a real great technical aspect to his direction, and I think he's absolutely knocked it out of the park here again. There's lots of clever segues and really great, like, um, funny cuts between scenes, and he's really good. That's this stuff. And there's the disco ball. How can you how can you poo poo the disco ball? <laughs> oh, yeah, that disco um, ball is so great. How but else you know, are you meant to tell the difference between the two? And you worlds? know immediately <laughs> what's happening when it comes up, right? Yes, no, that's entirely true. It, it's a really it's a really great visual shortcut, and I think 
Uh, I don't if if the story were being made in 1980, I don't think they would have used that imagery because it would have been too associated with you know dancing and whatnot. And but maybe so at the true. time it wasn't quite as quite as evident what was happening. Um, but the sort of you know the the interesting subplot to the direction of the story is the fact that Dougie Canfield had, I believe, a heart attack um, partway through episode two or partway through episode mm. three, somewhere in there, and had to go into hospital and did not return. And so Barry Lett stepped in to actually finish the story. And so he directed the vast majority of, of Inferno. He's always said, and I have no reason to disbelieve him necessarily, that it's largely based on Dougie Canfield notes, almost sure. entirely based on Dougie Canfield notes. Yeah. Dougie was such a meticulous director and planned everything so much storyboarded and the like, set up camera angles, that he just essentially almost came in as like an apprentice or a second unit director and did what the master director had laid out. Um, it is it is very well directed, um, which really helps create sort of more tension and more energy in a story that really could be people in rooms talking for large chunks of it. Um, yeah. But Canfield sort of does everything he can to try to make it more visually interesting. I think I think Dougie Canfield is one of those directors who, yes, who, who elevates the material he's given um, to the point where you don't notice what he, you know, I would, I think it takes a lot more skill to notice what he's doing right than it does to notice what other directors do poorly in Doctor Who. Good point. And so, yeah. you know, and so I think when you watch and people watch Inferno, they sort of like, yeah, this just looks like good TV. And it's like, well, often Doctor Who was not directed that well. I would say <laughs> yeah. the direction. No, honestly, I think often the direction was the thing that lets down the show most. Yeah. So many times it looks like it's sort of, they're just standing in, it's almost like a stage stage show where they're trying not to block each other but it's awkward and stifled and so yeah you often don't notice when it's good but yeah so in this instance i think you're right like um it's dynamic Mm -hmm. you never really you never bored visually really and you're right it's just people talking in rooms but the sets are really great and the you know the way they shoot through them and there's the smoke everywhere and the cuts between scenes are great and yeah and and scenes like the the i think it's the first interrogation of um brigade leader and liz or they're going after the, and the camera's like moving between their faces and like cutting yeah. it's very close and it's intense name who sent you here did you come to commit sabotage name what organization employs you when did you first become a traitor how did you get into the complex who helped you was it sutton name what is your name answer in a way that if you were just trying to like shoot it, you might just do a sort of standard setup and sort of have everything in, in three shot or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, but he really tries to inject those scenes with as much energy as the script requires them to have, which is, which is really what elevates it as a visual experience as opposed to just like a writing experience or uh, an acting experience. And of course, he cast most of the supporting characters, um, I would say, pretty much all of whom do stellar work here. There's a yeah, like you're saying the the interrogation scene didn't have probably didn't need to be quite that like dramatically filmed, but it was just I, I really great. I can think great. of a number of classic Doctor Who directors who would have just as you say used a, a medium shot or a three shot there and it would have looked very flat. Um, but you know the pacing there is achieved through the cutting, and that's that's you know a, a small but classic example of the way that Dougie you know approaches his work. There's tons of little bits where like my, one of my favorite bits early on is when um the I think it's pri- the Slocum Primord is about to deliver the killing blow and he and his hand cuts. swings down and it cuts yes. straight to Benton hammering in that nail it's so great I was like shocked by how awesome <laughs> that was yeah it's quite a modern technique isn't it it was something you wouldn't expect to see in 1970 BBC television but there you go so should we talk about our TARDIS team yeah, so, 1970. It, so it's John Pertwee as a third doctor, and we have a quasi-unit family in the sense that the Brigadier is there as well as, uh, as Sergeant Benton. 
Um, but it's not quite the unit family that we know from season eight onwards with yeah. Terror of the Autons, as we saw earlier. We've got Liz Shaw, who is one of the most underrated and amazing yeah. female companions that we've had, I think, of all time. Yeah, no, no disagreement there. <laughs> and this is and this is unfortunately her last story you know uh why exactly that is i think is still somewhat buried in the mist of time but it's certain that carrie john uh carolyn john uh got pregnant and she was actually pregnant near the end of filming this and hmm. there are some shots that were restaged slightly because she was starting to show and so she she left and so uh this is her last story and if you watch this story and you don't know it's Liz's last story. There's literally nothing that makes you think Liz won't be back in the next episode. Hmm. Um, which is, it, she's one of those companions who's sort of written off between series, um, which I think adds to the sort of disgrace that her character has sort of been uh, thrust into just simply by the fact that they went in such an opposite direction when they cast the next companion. Yeah, almost an insult. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like a, we made her too smart. And it's like, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah it's too good, like too capable not needing to ask as many questions, yeah. And this is not. Uh, this is a great story for Carolyn John. This is not a great story for the Liz companion we know because she doesn't actually do very much. Yeah. The li- evil Liz gets to do a lot, oh, which is nice. Evil Evil Liz gets to chew scenery and do all kinds of action man stuff. Yes, great. She's great. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Pertwee, we've got Pertwee at the, end, at the end of his first season. It's just about just approaching the peak of his powers. Yeah, I think, you know, he's still starting to um, feel his way into the role. And, and I think the third Doctor persona isn't quite there. Mm. It's still rough around the edges, kind of like Capaldi in, in Series 8, I think. Mm. He's, he's quite brusque. And I'm not sure if that's um, Pertwee himself or the, or the writing of the, the third Doctor. But he, he's sort of still got those sharp edges around him. Mm. And he's very prickly, very sort of patrician and uh, patriarchal, as we've mentioned before. And patronizing. We, patronizing. We, and we did see it, didn't we, in Terror of the Autons? But... Um, yeah, it's one of those defining features, I suppose, of the early Pertwee uh, era. And as good as this story is, and as wonderful as a performance as Pertwee um, puts in, I think, it's sometimes difficult to accept the Doctor when he is this uh, prickly. Prickly and, and rude and kind yeah. of and nasty to the Brigadier, but that never changes. Fifth from the left, third row. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, well, if it's true, I can see why you grew that moustache. No, and he's and he's he's just dismissive. He's mm. utterly dismissive of everything around him. He's, you know, the brigadier has brought him over to wherever Project Inferno. Nice subtle naming there, uh, code name people. Um, <laughs> you know, the brigadier has sort of dragged him over to sort of advise and monitor because it's a because there's enough concern about whatever this project is that unit's there, and so the doctor's along, and the doctor just doesn't care. The doctor has no interest in this project. He. He's fiddling with his TARDIS console that he somehow got out, got out of the TARDIS. Who knows? Um, <laughs> how do you get and, through the doors? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. How do you get through the doors? Who knows? Um, but he he's utterly disinterested, and the only reason he takes interest is because he has this journal of the parallel world that shows him that this project, not just being folly, is actually disastrous folly, and he that he becomes back very urgent. But it you know the first few episodes where he's just squabbling with. Um, Stallman. With Stallman and mm. bitching at the brigadier and sort of just <laughs> sulking off in his shed. It's yeah, it's not it's not his it's not his cuddliest moment, but I actually quite like the third doctor a lot more when he's showing the fact that he's just livid at the fact that he's stuck on this godforsaken planet and all he wants that's to it. do is get away. I think that's it, isn't it? He's someone who's been grounded by his parents and uh, is is taking it like a a petulant teenager would um, and is desperate to get out of there. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, I know a lot of people have very strong affection for the unit family stories that come shortly thereafter this. I'm 
I have a lot of problems with many of those stories, but I think the biggest I have is the fact that it, it's hard for me to sort of accept that the doctor would sort of decide, well, I'm here now. I might as well just take up cheese eating and wine drinking and whatnot. And, <laughs> being sophisticated. Uh, being Yeah, generally being sophisticated. Um, I was like, no, I think the character is much more interesting in season seven where you have to sort of work to get to the point where you like him. And you can sort of tell what characters are worthwhile because they're the ones who the doctor likes. You know, it's a wonder when you have a crotchety jerk of a main character, it's a really great shorthand when he likes someone because that lets us as audience members know that this is a good person. So the fact that he does warm quickly to the brigadier, even though in still in a sparring way, but he does trust him and like him. And the fact that he warms so quickly to Liz in uh, Spearhead from Space is a really good sign for us as audience members that this is a good person. Mm. And so you can sort of, when the doctor is being a jerk, you can sort of tell quickly who isn't, isn't worth us caring about or who isn't, isn't <laughs> worth it. Uh, so like the doctor likes Greg in, in this story and talks to Greg very openly. It's a sign that Greg's a good guy. Yeah. You know, it really helps us there. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think a certain something is lost from the part we are when he becomes more, he never becomes cuddly, but he becomes much more sort of human. I think that's a fair point. I mean, I, I appreciate the way in which the Pertwee character rounds off, I suppose, um, and I can see it as three distinct parts. Um, I, I think that, as you say, season seven went quite prickly is is, is rewarding in, in, in many ways. But I do love the story, the, I suppose the arc to it, which is someone who has been exiled and in amongst an exile finds a home and a family. And I mm. think that's, that's quite a lovely arc. But yeah, definitely season seven, very prickly, Someone who hates being there is always looking to escape, and um, it's all—it's all symptomatic of uh, his uh, the, the whole defining thing about Pertwee is that he's the smartest guy in the room. Yeah, he's everyone else is an idiot <laughs> compared to him in his mind, and everything kind of flows That's so from true, that. Isn't yeah. It? yeah, and he's on—he's in peak perform. He's in peak form in this one. He's um, he gets to do a Pertwee gurn. Gets to do Pertwee gurning when he gets uh, sucked into that dimensional <laughs> dimensional void or the limbo, and he's he's doing face stretching. Yep. He gets to do a Pertwee exposition coma later, where he uh, he, he reveals the, what what you have to do. When I, he's I love asleep. this term exposition coma. Nathan Bodenley from uh, Flight Through Entirety coined it. The idea that whilst semi conscious, a, a key piece to unlock the narrative is uh, is. I'm a two I'll put pipe. What did he say? Very dangerous. Very dangerous. Number two, I put pipe blown. How on earth did he know? Yeah. It happened with Harry in um, in uh, Terror of the Zygons. It's right? true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so he gets to do all that, and then he gets to do a little bit of class stuff, which we mm. we love um, at New to Who oh, when he yeah. gets to do his little BBC casual classes and stuff, <laughs> where he sort of like slips in. When they talk about how the royal family are dead, and he's like, "Oh, that's a shame, charming family." Yeah. <laughs> you and personally, of course. He and did. um. He only ever seems to want to deal with with Sir Keith, not not the, not the scientists mm-hmm. who work there. Good point. Even in the fascist universe, he uh, he's like, "Where's Sir Keith? I want to talk to Sir Keith." It's like, <laughs> "Why do you want to talk to this guy?" Talk- it's a definitely a weird little class. Thing. Yeah, I think I think it's class, but I think it's also Sir Keith. It's the person there whose job is closest to what the doctor's is, which is just to kind of make sure everything is going okay. And he's got and so, supposed to have a leash on Stallman, even though he doesn't really. Mm, yeah. That's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, and just sort of generally is not being driven by this sort of borderline megalomaniacal desire to name every ooze that comes out of the earth after himself. Like <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, he, he, I think he views Sir Keith as sort of like the person he can talk to about rationally about this project, um, and which is why his death in the parallel universe is such a blow. 
Yeah, yeah isn't it though? Uh, one question about Sir Keith, particularly in the, in the parallel universe, why is he a sir? Oh, you were talking about this before. <laughs> like if it's a fascist alternate universe. With what, the royal family having been executed, you know, decades ago. And they, they haven't, can't, you can't get rid of all the... knight of the realm. You can't get rid of all the peers. You can't kill them all. <laughs> but I guess if you were, uh, if you were they one... They can have a damn take, good try. They did in France. <laughs> yeah. You could at least take the sir off your name to blend, you know, so people don't... Yeah, up. yeah. So I think they, they... Yeah, just a minor point. I, I love Sir Keith. He's just so uh, hand-wringing. And, but he's also like sort of warm and lovely, played by uh, Christopher Benjamin. Oh, who's, he's, yeah, he was in um, Talons of Wing Chiang and and um, and you told let me know that he was in a new one as well. That I haven't seen Unicorn and the Wasp. Yeah, I haven't so seen So series four. Yeah, he's the one who accidentally confesses to a sexual fantasy or something, whatever. It is. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I think I think the Sir Keith thing. Yeah, it is interesting the fact that he is still Sir Keith. I don't, you know, that may have been just lazy uh, yeah. writing or a, a missed thing in the script. But I don't think so. I think it's that this sort of new republic, you know, dictatorship that is set up. Uh, would have killed the royal family because they would have been a rallying point for resistance, as is often the case in these situations, but might have mm. kept some of the tropes and things of the sort of previous society, including giving people who are in positions of authority or have done service of some kind these mm. these titles that are just sort of a way of showing what role they have. And so maybe everyone who works at a ministry and is of a certain level is called sir. Oh, or yeah. whatever to kind of show their status because sure. you would you know language isn't you know it's not completely orwellian in this this sort of parallel universe where everything is the language is completely twisted and distorted it's somewhat orwellian but they keep a lot of the same terms for things and so i could see a, you know a group coming in and saying well we should keep some of it so that it feels more continuous with what came before and you don't have this sort of sense of total disjuncture between the past and the present and people kind of convince themselves that everything is going along as normal. If you can convince the populace in a revolutionary state that everything is the same as it was before, you're much less likely to have any sort of resistance to your new regime. That's a good point. That's true, yeah, yeah. Keeping, the, keeping the old figures of authority, people yeah, to respect. Yeah. No, I, yeah. I, I, I take that for sure. Um, and then and we've got, we've, who else we've got? We've got Stalman, played by Olaf Pooley. Olaf Pooley. He's great. He's, such a, he's a good, uh, good senior chewer. Isn't he magnificent? He's really, I, I like him with and without the beard. And you know what? That's the only difference between the two worlds. The character is exactly the same. He's mm-hmm. as evil in our or the, the normal universe as he is in, in the, uh, the the evil version, um, which I particularly like. But I, I love how um, here we have a depiction of a character who is someone um, who's entirely driven, whose entire life is basically focused entirely on this goal. Um, and that holds like you're not influenced by politics or by you know notions of evil or good um that's the, his defining character trait yeah. and that's the the consistency between the two his convictions are so strong that in an infinite set of universes with infinite choices yeah more and more and more of them are going to have but going to be the same yeah he's so driven, exactly i guess <laughs> uh, i just like how he's wearing a, a white nero suit with white gloves in the uh, in the evil universe so <laughs> so evil We've talked about Nero suits before, particularly with um, Delgado's master, haven't we? And how that seems to be sort of like a symbol of the the Orient or the other, which is you know automatically sort of sidelined um, or put to one side as as a symbol of the evil. Mm. Um, yeah, no, notice he doesn't wear the Nero suit in our world, but he does in the uh, <laughs> yeah. in, in the evil world. Yeah, nice shorthand, BBC. But it's also you know, and this is it's the style choices made in the parallel universe because they're they're limited to a large extent. You know, they do little things with the art direction here and there, mm. but they the the clothes are different and yep. there are mm. interesting differences it's slightly more fashionable generally 
like I think I think Liz's outfit in the parallel universe is actually very stylish for the time. And her hair is way cooler. <laughs> and her yeah. hair is well, yeah, no, exactly. And she's not even blonde. Like, you know, all these sorts of things, it feels like she's not blonde because they probably maybe don't approve of like hair dye or something and so she's got her natural brown perhaps but it's you know maybe i don't know i'm just sort of hypothesizing there but it does feel like there are certain as is often the case and this is a weird thing to say as is often the case with fascist regime fascist regimes they put a lot of attention into making the clothes look stylish and and, and graphic design like you know and graphic design yes things like that they're very concerned about these appearances to sort of create Mm. the sort of air of ooh, because like no matter, you know, it's a horrible thing to say, but the Nazi uniforms were designed by Hugo Boss. And Hugo Boss, exactly. Sharp. Yeah. They You're look super right. sharp. Uh, yeah. And they have sort of influenced that idea that that's where you put some of your money is into making the clothes look cool. I think I think really influences people how they think about fascist regimes ever since. And I think that yeah. shows itself interestingly in Inferno. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Absolutely. I think we can all agree that the evil universe uh, characters look cooler. Just look, <laughs> yeah, well, let's just set that one down. Yeah. All right. Well, can we talk about the brigadier, aka yeah. the brigade leader, and the, the now infamous eye patch? <laughs> I've never noticed that there was a scar running underneath it as well. That was yeah, a really yeah. cool touch. Yeah, yeah. That looked quite realistic, particularly for 1970s. You could tell he loved he loved doing <laughs> this, man. They got to ham it up like crazy. Didn't he though? So great. Yeah, it's funny. It's because the 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 last story of season six, which is the War Games, also has a baddie with an eye patch with a scar underneath it. <laughs> um, which I think is very amusing that they sort of run back to that well so quickly. Uh, but yeah, no, the, the sort of, you know, all the actors, all the sort of regular actors and even the mm. guest actors are really given two different people to, to play. The only ones who kind of aren't are the doctor and to a certain extent, Greg and Petra. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah Cause they're, yeah, very they're pretty consistent. much the same. Um, but you know, I think, I think the actors must have enjoyed the story tremendously um, but that does make it one of those stories that if you're if you're a fan of like the Brigadier, this isn't a great story to watch because the Brigadier actually isn't in it that much. Mm. Um, like any parallel universe story that would come after this and, and some that came before it, um, like, you know, the Buffy stories that would go in the parallel universe or Star Trek or whatever. Mm. You sort of have all these dark versions of characters. They're great showcases for the actor. But if you're a fan of the character, and not the actor, they're not necessarily the place to go. Yeah, um, I was wondering about that because this is a couple of years after, a few years after Star Trek, or maybe a year after it finished, and they they'd already had their mirror universe thing where evil people, uh, same characters with with beards who are uh, are evil. I wonder if that influenced it. But I, I, yeah, they um, with all parallel universe stories, it's just like an excuse to do something you can't ever normally do and just do wild things with characters. And I think it was great. The brigadier evil brigadier's brigade leader is just so entertaining he's just always yelling he's almost trembling with like rage sometimes he was you know he's always being ordered to shoot someone or he's always yelling at someone he's great and then at the end he's kind of revealed to be kind of a weak kind of a coward nothing will help us that ball's gonna blast in a minute and we'll all be roasted alive look what's happening to our hard man you were all very tough when you were backed up by a bunch of thugs how do you like it on your own that's exactly it, isn't it? Behind, you know, the, the, those bullies, you actually see someone who's actually very scared. And, and here's someone who's, you know, uh, his career would have come through that sort of fascistic uh, army yeah. and so would have relied on those instruments of, uh, you know, whatever it is, you know, persuasion and torture and whatever else that fascism relies mm-hmm. upon. So he never really had to develop that moral character that I think the Brigadier in the normal universe would have developed. You know, they're, they're at odds because there's a moral core and centre to Nicholas Courtney's Brigadier that the Brigade Leader entirely lacks. Mm. 
Yeah, no, I think I think it's entirely right. I think it's one of those one of those interesting case studies where they show how the environment can affect a man, and mm. it's it's uh, it's it's interesting to think because I think the brigadier is often thought of as being very British in like the best way. Like he's sort of, he's <laughs> sort of this really lovely summation of like the many of the best aspects of the British character. And yeah. so what happens if you if you distort and twist Britain? Well, then the brigadier would reflect that, and so he's Absolutely. like, yeah our ultimate reflection of the sort of twisted nature of, of this evil Britain that we find ourselves in, that the brigad- this is what the brigadier is like here. Liz is, you know, sort of deep down inside the same Liz, um, which then makes you wonder what Ben is like. Benton is like deep down inside if this is what he's like in the parallel universe. Um, and if that Benton essentially is just basically a mindless follower at heart. <laughs> and we'll do and we'll do whatever he's told he's like the perfect military man he just follows orders um and that uh you know you put him in a situation of a totalitarian regime where he's in where the orders are to be as vicious as possible he just goes for it so maybe benton is much weaker of character than we might think otherwise well it's not it's just nice to see that even in an alternate a dimension that's so different benton is still just as useless <laughs> kind of just as a dork <laughs> Yeah. It's reassuring, right? Fake incompetence. Yeah, you can't hide incompetence. It's there. It's not. <laughs> oh. oh, poor Benton. Yeah, but no, it's 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 that sort of that sort of trick is used. I think very um, is used tremendously wisely. I think it, in mm-hmm. lesser hands, it could have been just very sort of we'll kind of do a race against the clock thing. But in, instead, they really use it to subvert everything you think you know about who these people are and how the doctor mm-hmm. relates to them. And to just only make you feel tremendously ill at ease to the point where you forget about the drilling for a large chunk of the story and are just mm. fascinated by these sort of evil versions of the characters we know and love. And you want to know more. As you're hungry for info about this this world that they've sort of created, this fascist style sure. of Britain. Yeah, every little snippet. There's just, there's just snippets here and there. There's not a lot to go on, but it does paint quite a cool picture. Interesting yeah, picture. I, I think you're left to infer a lot. And, you know, in terms of the, the rise of the fascistic state in that alternate universe... Mm. Uh, it's called out actually in the Terence Dix novelization, but it, I think it's implicit there as well. It goes back to that 30s period when Oswald, Oswald Mosley and the, mm. the British uh, fascists, the black shirts, were sort of a, not a le- not entirely a legitimate, but they were you know a, a serious political sort of spectre on on the horizon, and there was a. a you know, prior to Churchill, there was, you know, particularly through Chamberlain, yeah. a, a policy of of appeasement towards yeah. the um, the Nazis. And I think the inference here is, if we hadn't done anything, if Britain hadn't done anything during that that critical period, if Churchill hadn't come to power and essentially convinced everyone um, of the evils of Nazism, you know, I think that would, you know, the inference is that it would have opened the door for the types of you know Mosley to be propped up and supported by the Nazis, who um, would have gone unchallenged on the Western Front. Um, and would have essentially taken over the whole of Europe. And it's a really interesting and fascinating sort of point, turning point in history. It's, it's one that literature keeps coming back yeah. to. You know, you've got Philip K. Dick, The Man in the Castle, yeah. uh, Len Dayton's SSGB as well, which, um, and more recently as well, Stephen Baxter with Weaver, which is like this whole what-if Operation Sea Line in this instance, which was the Nazi invasion of Britain, what if that had succeeded? And I think um, there was... Uh, a new adventure back in the 90s. Isn't there a isn't Time Worm Exodus? Exodus, That's yeah, by Terence Dix, Dix, yeah, yeah. which, which um, you know, covers the same thing. It's one of those fascinating periods of, of history. And um, I think it's that, ladder, that that turning point that sort of seems to be the cause for the divergence between mm. the two worlds. Um, and, yeah, it's just one of those sort of really sort of 
uh, fascinating sort of pop culture ideas that sort of seeps through into Doctor Who again. And, and that sort of is a really um, concentrated in the figure of Stallman, this yeah. German. Yes. <laughs> this very German character who is the same in both stories. Um, so you can imagine in, in sort of, you know, parallel Britain that this German scientist who has all his sway is perhaps a Nazi, an actual Nazi. Sure. Who's been sent over by the Nazi regime to assist or is part of this one great, you know, who knows? You don't, you know, the backstory, as you said, is sort of murky and I think that's for the best. But his his Germanness of his name, the cast and actor with an accent, the whole nine yards, mm. is, I think, is tremendously important to understanding this sort of specter he represents and how it's and how it's different in one universe than the other like stallman is much more powerful and frightening in the parallel universe than he is um than he is in sort of our universe but at the same time you know if someone like stallman can create a lot of havoc in our universe when people are unwilling or unsure what to do you know all the conversations greg and petra have in our universe about you know, him trying to convince Petra that he's Stallman's a problem, shouldn't be listened to, that things need to be done differently, mm. trying to get Sir Keith to pay attention and do the right thing, that you know, all the doctor's efforts. Um, it's, it's almost like even in our universe, these people like Stallman who sort of fit nicely in a totalitarian regime can create a lot of havoc when people are unwilling or uncertain about what to do when they surface. And so... Yeah. Keeping that character consistent and keeping him German, I think, is actually very important. Yeah, because he's so confident. He knows what he wants. He knows how to get it, uh, and he know he talks a good game as well. He's good at, um, even though he's not, you know, supposedly Sir Keith is uh, is the oversight and they're in you know, the ministries in charge. He knows he knows how to play the game and, and game the system and how to get. You know, he he knows that Keith's got to go to London and back, and in that time he can yeah. he can enact his plan. And yeah, yeah, yeah. That's um, you know, the, the power of Stalman is 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 something that um, is really at the centre of this story. Mm. Um, as you say, Eric, it's, the inference is pretty clear. This is, this is someone who is meant to be depicted, if not as you know, a Nazi, then certainly as, as, a, as a fascist. And that sort of single-mindedness about the cause and, um, is something that we see even in, in, in the, um, the, our own universe as opposed to mm. the, the, the parallel world as well. He's so single-minded yeah. and he knows, he knows how, to, how to get what he wants. And then, like you said before... Um, the people around him are not sure who's in charge. They're not sure how to countermand Stalin. He's so confident in, in his um, in his authority, in seizing and, that power. Yeah, and because yeah. they don't do anything. I mean, that's why when when good people do nothing. You know, that's so. exactly it, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. And I, I think that's really that really brings home the sort of political allegory that is at the heart of the story in many ways. Yeah, definitely. And th- the point is that you know, you know it is still in living memory, and this is something that still haunts the British psyche, the, the, the spectre of Nazism and fascism and, and how close they came to, you know, um, succumbing to that is, is, is something that was, um, I'm trying to say here that it's, it's not that it never really um, was vanquished, I suppose, you know, there was that sort of hint and you see it through things like the Daleks and, and the Cybermen as well, which are probably more um, communist than, than fascist, but in, throughout Doctor Who, and there's that sort of continual exploration. We keep coming back to these symbols of fascism and these symbols of Nazism codified through science fiction, whether it's Davros or whether it's the Daleks or whether it's Stalman. It's, a, it's, it's something that is there because, as I said, it's you know, 25-odd years since the, the end of that war. 
And the people who are making it, I mean, yeah. people who are making the show have been touched by it. Like you said, we know, we know that Barry Letts was in the war. And John Pertwee was an intelligence mm, officer. Uh, and, and even if they weren't, even if they weren't, they didn't participate in the war, everyone who's acting in this story has had their lives touched by it, maybe yeah, lived through it as a child, or yep. at least their families affected Absolutely. by it. So that, that's like, you know, in this, even all the way up until the 80s, that every now and then when they do a story that involves these kind of elements, it always mm. makes me think about how the actors, how, it's, how that, those those things touch their the lived lives experience and inform their performance a little yeah. bit. Like we were talking before in our um, Curse of Henrik, Curse of Henrik yeah. episode about the Polish actors who were playing Russian That's soldiers right, yeah. and how that must have really affected their performances. Yeah. So, so one of the reasons that I think Inferno works so well is the use of the parallel world and particularly how it's structured. We have the first two episodes, which are set in the Hooniverse, if you like, for want of a better term, before we have a normal four-parter, if you like, embedded within the middle of the story, which is set in the, the, uh, the evil fascistic world, at the end of which the Earth is destroyed. And then we come back in part seven to the resolution back in the normal universe. Um, I think it's an incredibly clever and obviously born of necessity. Terence Dix would have looked at the script from Houghton and thought, oh, there's not enough here. Mm. How can we do it? I think you know, Dix is clever enough and, and um, agile enough to sort of deliver those kinds of um, narrative devices to, to, to solve those issues. But it's, I don't know what it is. This man is clearly a genius, even under pressure like this. This is the guy who gave us the war games, you know, with Mark, Mac Hulk. This is someone who oversaw the, you know, creative direction of Doctor Who for five years at, at a critical point of its, um, yeah. of its history as well. Um, I can't speak highly enough of Terence Dix and, and his work with Horton in developing the, the seven-part structure, the two plus four plus one structure mm. of, of Inferno. Yeah, without it, it would just been a... Yeah, without that structure to split it up a little bit thematically, it's, it would have been a bit of a slog to get through seven. Yeah. Yeah, even at the time. Yeah, no, I think that's... I think it's exactly right. I think you look at the other seven-part stories, maybe from this season, where they're sort of more just... And then something else happens structure which i mean it's perfectly fine i don't want to diminish that sure the and then something else happens essentially the structure of the war games which is one of the greatest stories they've ever done which is written by terence sticks and um malcolm hogg mm. but here they did settle on this sort of embedding narratives embedding stories within stories kind of idea. So you have yeah yeah yep. you go and then you come back and you come back again um which I, I think opens the door for a lot of other you know ways of looking at these sort of longer stories this is vaguely the structure that would be used going forward for the sort of uh, six-part stories, especially during the the Hinchcliffe Holmes era. They always essentially it was two and fours that were put together. Yeah, and we saw that in the Seeds of Doom. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> to the point where sometimes it's almost like really clunky how much that's the case. You when you look at something like uh, <laughs> like the Invasion of Time, which is yeah. just absurd. Two how parts much stapled so- onto the end. <laughs> yeah, it's just tacked on. Yeah, <laughs> two parts of Sontarans running around doing things. Yeah. Um, whereas here, because they're they're able to do that, but not make it feel not make it feel forced because it is yeah. essentially they're just telling the same story from a different angle and so it's not like okay two parts here and then we fly to the north pole for four parts or whatever it's not <laughs> this sort of it still manages to feel epic yet contained which is such a hard balance to work out and i think that structure is vital to that and allowing them to do it that way yeah absolutely i mean the first two parts set up like you normally would have a normal doctor who story with the exposition and the orientation of the characters and the drama mm. before you know the cliffhanger at the end of part two where we go into um uh, essentially the the dark world the, mm. the the evil version um i 
And again, what's really interesting is that most of part three is an exposition yeah. of pretty much what we saw in part one again. and two. In, in a, yeah. What works with that, I think, two things. One, you have the, um, the, the sheer fascination of what a British uh, or a fascistic Britain would look like. Mm. And, you know, the, the way in which the brigade leader wears an eye patch and doesn't have a moustache mm. and that sort of fascination of something familiar perverted in a dark way. The Republic logo. And then, yes. then you've got the old the Big Brother uh, portrait on the wall. Yeah, the, who, who I think was one of the um, the back room guys, one of the Foley guys. Visual effects guy, I yeah. think. Yeah. I love that because he looks so he does. evil. <laughs> you never get to meet him, which is really no. what I really like. He's just always kind of there in the background. Yeah, and the, the idea is very 1984 for me. Yeah. It's like a figurehead. Maybe it doesn't even exist, but it's, you know, it's the, the face of the... Yeah, maybe he's the Borad. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Timelash reference. Love it. Um, so the other thing is, of course, during those those middle four parts, we actually get those disco ball flashbacks to mm. the, the normal universe, the, the, the world that we left behind. And we get to see, I suppose, the contrast between those two, but also the rate at which the drilling is accelerating in the in the more evil yeah. um, world than the, than the normal one is. And that that. This is what Terence Dickstux does so well. There's, uh, you know, in novelizations growing up as a kid, I'd get to the end of the chapter and I'd go, oh my God, I want yeah. to read on. And then the next <laughs> chapter would pick up something else that's happening in the narrative and you go, no, I don't want to read about that now. Yeah. I want to read about this. But of course, by the time you finish that chapter, it's like, oh Same my again. God, I can't, I want, to, I want to know what happens next. And this is what happens in Inferno as well. You get to a point in the narrative where there's a, a ratcheting up of, of tension and drama and then we cut back to the other world and it's just like, oh, hang on, no, 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 go back because I want to see what happens. But, of course, the same thing happens on the other side and that backwards and forwards in between the two, but like, it's well, so good. He's such a great writer. He, he, always, he always takes care of you. Like, um, yeah. like when you're saying the first time you transition back to the – we set you up in the, in the evil universe and you know what's going on. Yeah. Then he'll, he'll take you back to the normal universe just so you know, all right, cool, we're going back to the normal one. And then it's not till later that it starts switching multiple times in one episode. Mm-hmm. But by that time, you've got what's happening and you've, you've seen the yeah, mir- yeah, yeah. mirror ball and you understand. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't have very little to add except, yes, Terrence Hicks is a genius. Uh, and, this is, <laughs> but, and, and, what, and his greatest genius is, is his sense of structure, how the show should be paced, how the show should be built. Totally agree. Uh, yeah. I don't think anyone has ever done it better than him in many ways, especially during the classic era, having this in sort of almost intuitive sense from having been in the trenches, I think, so long of how you do how you do these things and i think you know you know that's a great example of the fact that you know you first go to the parallel universe and they have to sort of reestablish all the characters so we can see mm-hmm. how they're slightly different or maybe not yeah. so slightly different sure and then by episode five you're cutting back and forth multiple times because he knows and houghton knows that we'll understand what's happening and yeah. they won't need to keep holding our hand but you need to hold the hand at the beginning where do you come from i've already told you i come from a parallel space-time continuum twin world of this. If you told us the truth, there might be some hope for you. Your counterpart in the other world would tell you that I'm not in the habit of telling lies, Elizabeth. Whatever they taught you in this bigoted world of yours, you've still got a mind of your own. Now use it before it's too late. Mm. Yeah. He's, um, he's so great. His, his influence is actually a little outsized for me because, um, because I, I read so many novelizations before True, I saw so many of them. Yeah. And he, even though he wasn't the primary writer for most of them, I don't know. As script editor, he took the the option to to write write a lot of the novelizations mm. of the stories that he wasn't the, the main writer for. But yeah, and there's a number that he sort of fixes as well because he's got that yeah. eye. Um, but yeah, well, that's uh, the job of script editor, right? Yeah, exactly yeah. right. Yeah, um, I, 
particularly love the fact that part six, though, um, is a moment in Doctor Who that I don't think we ever get to see ever again, which is the end of... Well, apart from oh. if you want to talk about uh, um, Eric's first story ever, which is um, <laughs> The End of the World with Eccleston, we actually see The End of the World. Yeah. That's like such the a great, Earth is destroyed. great moment. That's such a, a really great moment where they do some BBC lava, but it's going towards the doors. It and looks good. It's CSO, but it just looks it's so compelling <laughs> and terrifying. As a kid, I, I remember thinking it was a yeah very terrifying. And, and not only that, but the build-up to it was so tense and terrifying. When they go outside, the sky's red, everything's mm. boiling hot. And I just remember the first time I ever saw it that I'd never been confronted with characters who know that they're definitely going to die and the world is definitely yeah. going to end. Yeah. I'm not sure about how long it goes for in the book, but it's at least a couple of episodes. A couple of um, it's it's at least a couple of episodes in the show where they talk. They they bring it up a lot that it doesn't really matter because they're all going to die, and there's nothing they can do to stop it. And I remember that blowing my mind. This is the first time I'd ever sort of experienced that in fiction. The hopelessness and the helplessness yeah. of it. Like, what do you do on an existential level, knowing that the world is going to die, and they're trapped in this space? They're not allowed out as well. And they all have different reactions to it. Yeah. Like Greg, Greg's uh, Sutton's reaction is to just say, "Let, let's just, just try and grab a girl and get out of there." Yeah. And try and spend the last couple of weeks of his life doing something, you know, unspeakable. Cool. And then the brigade, the brigade leader's reaction is to try and shoot his way onto the uh, onto the. Because he knows nothing else. Yeah. And, and we have Liz... To bully Sh- his way back and, yeah, to yeah. bully his way out of it. Yeah, but I love Liz Shaw's reaction, which is just a sort of, yep, we're dead. And if, we, if there's anything that I can do to help the Doctor get back to this other world to prevent another world ending, that's just, you know, the moral heart there of, of the companion coming through. I think it's a beautiful moment for the Liz Shaw character, whether evil or not, um, that there's something fundamentally decent uh, and a spark within her that just never dies, even in a fascistic universe. Although it's interesting, she does it by shooting the brigade leader, <laughs> you know, and so yeah. even even though it is a yeah a sort of open uh, self sacrificing gesture, she does it by murdering someone. So yeah. <laughs> there's still that hard edge, but it is yeah. fascinating this entire idea that you in episode six because you're used to watching Doctor Who and something comes in to save the day. The Doctor figures it out. They discover yes, so true. Some, you know a magic button, whatever, and it, it it just doesn't happen. And it's such a sort of weird message and disconcerting message that there's some things that can't be fixed even by the doctor that there are some lines that if you cross them there literally is no going back there are rubicons there are points of no return and that if you do it you're done they're just he can't save you he can't save an entire planet of innocent people Mm. and it's and it's unique because this time because because you see the world destroyed and you know that that will definitely definitely irrevocably happen if they drill through to penetration zero yeah um that when you go into the last episode there's real tension because you've seen yes. what could happen and it's terrifying yeah and it's a race against time yeah. in the ne- next 25 minutes to ensure that it doesn't happen to this world yeah i think that's true can we just uh, a little penetration zero is a terrible <laughs> terrible phrase why why oh my god um yeah, ignoring that. But I, I also think, yeah, it's entirely, yeah, entirely right. Episode seven is a race against time, and will the Doctor wake up, and will you know things change? Um, but at the same time, it's not yet gotten to the point where it's a cliche that you always stop things with one second left, and so it yeah. stops with a few minutes before penetration zero, if I remember correctly. Which I sort of love this idea that it makes it feel somewhat more natural and therefore kind of more scary. That it's not like it's one second and everything happened just the right time. It's more this idea that if people hadn't been paying attention, a few minutes would have gone by and the world would have ended without anyone noticing why it happened. Yeah, I remember it's an unremarkable number. I remember watching it this time and thinking it would be five seconds or something dramatic. It's like 39 or something? Something like 39, 35, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's whatever it is. And it's just sort of, 
this completely random amount of time without any sort of dramatic inherent dramatic meaning is what separates you know our universe from theirs 35 seconds is all it takes for the world to end it's a terrifying thought yeah and as you say eric it's not like a magic button there's actually this, you know five minutes worth of uh, cool down or whatever that the drills need to to stop mm. before they actually get to that point um and that makes it a little bit more believable but i think it also helps to just maybe add another five minutes worth of story as well <laughs> yes. um I, I think part seven episode seven is is maybe the weakest ironically of of the of the whole lot because we know what the the drama and the tension is and i think most of it sort of really pays off in part six and maybe also the last five minutes of part seven as well because mm. whilst there's no you know inherent danger we know that the doctor's going to save the day it's, it's it's about how but I feel like perhaps you know, fifteen to twenty minutes of that part seven maybe isn't as pacey or as um, I, I'll put it this way: if it was a 10, 15 minute episode, it would have been wonderful. <laughs> but at twenty five minutes, it sort of starts to feel the stretch. We've got the Doctor who's come back. There's the exposition coma. He starts smashing up the control room and acting <laughs> crazy because apparently that's the best way to be believed in this sort of situation. <laughs> and in in the end, it's probably you know Starman in the primate form who reveals himself to everyone else, and you know in so doing is. Is, um, is defeated by um, himself ultimately um, that we kind of get I don't know it's not as pacey and as dramatic and as tight as maybe the other episodes are for me although I think the I, you're right the doctor coming in and smashing I think is you know going smashy smashy is is <laughs> not always what we think of him but I think it really goes to show how scarred he was by this event you know the, that's a good point the novels will pick up this idea that the third doctor from this moment on has been sort of damaged to some extent by having watched a world burn in front of him that yes. he was unable to save and and that I mean that would leave a mark that really you know not to be not to be glib about it that would even the doctor would be affected by the fact and this is kind of the first time that's happened to the doctor that we've seen at least um in on this sort of scale and so it would only kind of in some way make sense that he would just kind of come in intending to be all doctory and just kind of flip out just for once not being able to handle like the fact that the people won't listen and they won't do the right thing and so he's just going to do whatever he can to make it stop and that involves taking a crowbar or whatever it is to all the machinery Mm. um you know and, and then you're right it's exactly it's he can't convince them to stop it. It's like yeah. his, his greatest arguments are still lost on them in some ways, partly because he's gone a bit mad from the entire experience. And so you acquire a monster poking up from behind the door to sort of accelerate. <laughs> and Starman's already proved that he won't listen to literally anyone with mm-hmm. any reasons, any, any great reasons. Yes, well, I'll tell you something that should be of vital interest to you, Professor. But what? That you, sir, are a nitwit. Mm. Yeah, so maybe that's why he goes there. I, I think what you say, Eric, it's a good point, and I hadn't hadn't sort of um, realised it when I was watching this. But you're right; there is that sort of psychological damage, and again, we see in Mind of Evil another Don Horton story where um, you know the Doctor's greatest fear is revealed to be actually well, oh. fire, or the end. Of, you know what we see in terms yeah. of Inferno, the, a world going up in, in smoke. Oh my god! So yeah, I, I forgot all about Never that. But you're that. right; the sort of uh, psychic damage that they would do to someone to see the end of the world, um, and and maybe he is justified in you know lashing out and acting a bit undoctorish and crazy in part seven. There, I hadn't thought of that. But I, I do see what you mean about seven being a little bit of a, a anticlimax, just because we've had so much tension built up to that at the end of episode six with yeah. the destruction of the world. Yeah. Um, and there's so much that contributes to it. Like, there's always alarms going off, mm-hmm. uh, constantly alarms and smoke, and it's mm-hmm. kind of tense. But then there's there's the Thunderbirdsy kind of countdown that's <laughs> yes. always happening. There's always the guy on the tannoy right now, you know, taking countdown. And then there's that great music by 
they didn't actually commission any original music for this one. It's all lifted from the how, BBC. How good ro- is that? So it's all, it's all BBC Radio Workshop. Sound design in this is incredible. As you say, it's just you know BBC um, Radio Workshop. So it's kind of like an ambient um, noise that it isn't even mm. really music. It's more so just a, a track in the background. But for me, it's the drill sound. Yeah. And there's that, and you know, overlay particularly with klaxons at, 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 at key moments. That sort of impending sense of dread is built up and mm. up and up at, throughout the entire run of the of the story and it, it's it's due to that sound design i think yeah and some of it's delia derbyshire as well oh, yeah really? yeah there's a lot of that in there yeah it's great Lovely. i really love that they just managed to make so much tension and it made, managed to make it fit the story so well just lifting mm. stuff from the library that was already there yeah they just chose really well yeah great. definitely i think one of the most interesting things for me in this um in this story is this notion of free will that sort of is, uh, is peddled out by by John Pertwee's Doctor in Part Seven, and where he says, "Yes, of course, of course, an infinity of universes, ergo an infinite number of choices. So free will is not an illusion after all." I think it's a really interesting bit of Doctor Who taking you know larger ideas and concepts and philosophies into ki- basically kids' television, and I love it for it. Um, it's beautiful on a number of levels, but I think you know it's it's Doctor Who ascribing to a philosophy, um, a libertarian philosophy that's actually quite um, empowering and 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 um, you know very much of its time as well. You know we have this idea going back really to I suppose the time of the French Revolution, which we know from Reign of Terror is the Doctor's favourite period of history for some <laughs> reason. Um, that you know we have uh, this idea of free will that we can we can choose our own destiny that we're not. Um, you know, subject to the will of God and our lives are de- predetermined or ordained from the start through our own agency are able to plot our own lives and our own courses. And I think, you know, that's one of the the main things that I walk away with in terms of Inferno, that idea that it's the empowering of the individual and free choice, you know, that we can make a difference, that, you know, uh, in our own little ways we can you know, save the world or, you know, send it into a fiery inferno. And I particularly like that about this one, the the way in which free will is is, uh, examined through the two parallel worlds. He doesn't even seem... He seems to realise that for the first time when he gets back from the evil dimension. He does, doesn't he? He's sort of saying to himself, so free will isn't an illusion after all. (laughs) So appropriately enough, there is some drilling happening, uh, so you'll probably be hearing that (laughs) off and on. Uh, But uh, aside from that, what you were saying about this idea of free will, it would be... It would be very rational for a race such as the time lords to believe in some sort of uh, physical determinism where our choices were not set out by god but by the nature of the universe and atoms interacting will only interact in a certain way and sort of the you know sort of newtonian physics taken to its ultimate extreme leads to sort of sort of clockwork universe in which choice is but an illusion Mm, everything follows a formula yeah yeah everything follows from the first movement and you can't change it from there but the but yes, yeah, so this idea that you have parallel universes created by differences in human choice uh, means that there is something like free will, although it does it does not solve the question about whether or not within your own universe you have free will. <laughs> it just means that there are other choices that could have been made by you, and so that leads to other universes. But it's uh, it is the, the it's interesting though how little the free will idea is dealt with until that that moment in episode seven when the doctor says so free will isn't an illusion after all it's almost like it wasn't a theme so much as they thought it was a funny line to add or a clever line and then we sort of back read it throughout the rest of the episode yeah i think that's a fair point it's not foregrounded throughout but oh, I, th- I think the drilling stopped they, they've reached penetration zero <laughs> well that's why i'm no, I'm, I'm, I'm muting when necessary <laughs> okay, <yeah>. okay. <laughs> 
um, sorry, Steve. Do you think? No, I was just gonna, I was just going to say that the the free will um, the free will argument isn't foregrounded per se. It does feel just like sort of a little bit of icing on the cake in episode seven. Yeah, I think it is incidental, and it's one of those things that um, really is inferred through the establishment of the two worlds, and then you know it's sort of called out uh, officially, if you like, and, and explicitly in that part seven. But you're right; it's not something that is uh, like a recurring exploration of a theme or whatever throughout. And I'm and I agree with you. I, I'm not sure if there is like a finite, definite. Uh, solution at the end of it in terms of whether free will um, means that we have the freedom within this particular universe to uh, to um, to avert that and that, that's yeah that's a fair point too is it an illusion after all yeah and we'll never know and that's sort of fine but it's nice to have doctor who sort of chime in there with a with a one-liner from the doctor yeah definitely yeah. Um, there's a number of literary and sort of mythic antecedents to this story, um, as a lot of Doctor Who stories are informed by, you know, myth and literature. Um, most clearly, we've got a reference to 1928's um, short story by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle called When the World Scream, which is actually, I suppose, a line that's, you know, what's, what's Pertwee's line in that? That's the sound of the world screaming. Do you hear that? Uh, yes, that's, that's the sound the, of the, the world screaming at its rage. Listen to that! Yeah, which I think is a, is a play on on this particular um, short story title. Just want to run you through this. So it's a short story. It concerns a chap called Professor Challenger, right? And he his aim is to drill into the Earth's crust until he reaches the mantle, and he's convinced that in so doing he'll be able to contact the sentient being, and in doing so. This uh, you know, chthonic entity just wakes up and destroys everything, and we, which is I think that's pretty close. Yeah, it's close, isn't it? And you know, we talked about before, like this intelligence or this sort of entity that's sort of down in the depths. Um, you know, it really speaks to me of like a sort of um, uh, you know, sort of old Greek myth, you know, of, mm. of, of Tartarus or of you know, Uranus, um, you know, trapped within the, the middle of the earth. Yeah, locked, locked down underneath the earth, or Fenris chained up. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or the waters of Mars, where there's something primal down there, um, and we can't understand it. We can't, you know, even commune with it, or you know, it's, it's not an intelligence that we can understand. In a way, it's kind of Lovecraftian. That idea yeah. that there is this sort of huge thing that's beyond our, you know, perception and understanding that is is far more powerful and primal than we are. And I think, yeah, I mean, there's a nice. I think that's definitely be, uh, it's cribbing from that um, Conan Doyle story there. Yeah, Lovecraftian stuff is that's in there. I mean, that's we never really understand what yeah. what's down there, what kind of what kind of forces are unleashed to destroy the world. I mean, it's the same as Lovecraft. Like, you never really understand those uh, those old gods because if you did, you'd go mad. Yeah. <laughs> Terence Dix is famous for having said, and I'm going to misquote it slightly, it's like, all you need to write for Doctor Who is a good idea. It doesn't need to be your good idea. Totally agree. I think this is a very good example of they're clearly having been inspired by other works, other events, but they put their own Doctor Who spin on it to sort of make it not just a rehash. Yeah, yeah definitely. I mean, there's a couple of others as well. Obviously, there's a reference to Dante's Inferno, the first of the three canticles of the Divine Comedy, uh, which is, you know, largely a story of a descent into the underworld. Um, I, I think that's definitely there. And there's references to Inferno or Infernal um, as a sort of uh, mm. interesting you know, language tick that sort of recurs throughout. But I think also, like, the Inferno itself is kind of in, uh, suggestive of, you know, what we are talking before, like a chthonic ancient Greek kind of conception of an earthbound uh, god or, or, or power. You know, we have Gaia, who was the Earth Mother, and I think what we have here is, 
you know, like the the sanctity of the Earth Mother or of of Gaia being violated by the drill. Literally, and, you know, yeah, yeah, absolutely, and and it sort of um harkens back to this idea. Or the old myth of um, Gaia's revenge against um, Uranus, the um, the sky god, as well. I think so. You know, there's the myth that Gaia brought these strange and awful children, the Hecatonchires and the, and the, and the Cyclopes, and they, they, these were so hideous that um, Uranus, the the sky god, who was the father, buried them deep in the earth. That is to say, put them back into Gaia, and, and Gaia was in tremendous pain and um, tried to get a revenge on her on on um, on Uranus, which she actually did through Kronos, and you know that sort of uh, violation, I suppose, of the earth of Gaia is, um, I think, evident in here as well. Mm-hmm. So it also harkens back to the Gaia hypothesis of 1969 by James Lovelock, so a year before this was written and, and screened, the idea that the earth is a living entity, um, has its own sort of natural balance and ecosystem, um, and that's, you know, something that has really influenced um, the 1970s with respect to, you know, environmentalism and, you know, the hippie movement and whatever well, yeah, else. Yeah, if you push it too far, there'll be consequences. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I think I think there's, you know, those influences in, in here as well. Yeah, no, I think, um, if I remember correctly, I, I brought up this sort of, like, Earth Mother feminist interpretation of Inferno on Dr. The Writer's Room, and Kyle just sort of giggled. Because ah. um, I don't think he was quite prepared for that. Um but I, I think it's entirely there. I think it's a really interesting story to look at yep. from this sort of uh, ecological feminist perspective. Definitely. Um, mm-hmm. uh, which is very sort of, very au courant, as it were. Um, but I mean, this idea that the Earth sort of has its sort of wonders that we don't understand that, you know, I mean, it's still functional. I mean, in the forest of the night, which is not everyone's favorite or anyone's favorite Capaldi story. Um by Frank Cotter Boyce is still premised on the same idea that the earth has ways of protecting itself that we don't understand. Mm-hmm. And it's not as yeah. simple as that there's something, there's something more than simply this bit and that bit over there. There's some sort of communion between them. And so, yeah, this idea that the earth itself would have almost a defense mechanism to prevent its mm. most problematic children, humans from going in um, and, and doing something awful is interesting. And the last, the and if this is, I, I'm sure completely accidental, but I think it's funny. Yeah. This idea of Gaio getting her revenge on Uranus, did it through Kronos. Kronos, whose name, of course, means time. Mm. So it's like the way the Earth gets its revenge is by t- through time. Yeah, I think all of those things are definitely there. And, and if they're not, you know, consciously drawn upon, I think it's part of that um, the mythic landscape that, you know, the story draws upon. There's definitely consequences to like a literal penetration of the crust. Yeah. Uh, and at the end, the very end, they pack it up. They're like, no, we're not going to do it. We're just going to we're going to fill it up, and then the whole project is cancelled. It's mm. like, they, did they learn their lesson? I if I could uh, just jump in, the um, so that line that's the sign of the planet screaming at its rage that the third Doctor has in episode three or four, somewhere in there, maybe even earlier. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously lifted from the kind of Doral story, I think. But it's it's interesting. It's one of those moments. You have moments in Doctor Who where it sort of symbolizes the way one Doctor approaches a situation that another Doctor wouldn't have. And barging into a control room and screaming, that is the sound of this planet (laughs) screaming at its rage, is not something Hartnell or Troughton would ever have done. That's so true. It's such a a defining moment for the part we doctor, the third doctor. This is how he interacts with things. He sometimes will get frustrated and then shout poetry at them, essentially. Yeah. (laughs) Beautifully crafted line. And it is my it is my favorite single line in all of classic Doctor Who because I think it is so it's it's angry and it's shouted and it's and it's frustrated but it's also um, it's also so clearly on the side of 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 still beauty and appreciation it's sort of this it is like shouting something beautiful which is a weird combination the sound of the planet screaming out its rage 
it's just yeah and i i actually I, I love that line and the way it's delivered by pertwee i think it's fantastic yeah um and the fact that it comes so early in the story when i think the temptation would be to put it really late in the story is actually also quite interesting I just wanted to talk for a minute about the production of this one. It just looks so great. I, I just, I love the sets. Mm-hmm. Each each set's distinct and different. Even the even the boring office set is still got that little where they hammer the hammer the uh, the, the weird full, yeah. graduation portrait <laughs> yeah. of the brigadier in there. It's, it's great. But then the the um the sets of the, on location, the like the bitumen plant and the just industrial places. Yeah, are really great. And, and it's shot in January, like in miserable wind yeah. British winter, and it just yeah really adds to the feel of the story, doesn't it? Uh, and they've got the, um, they've still got the original Hartnell console, and it looks knackered. Like, it's really like you know, just when the time rotor goes up and down, yeah. all the bits inside start to wobble, yeah. like they're about to fall off. Yeah, I think, I think it's the last time they ever used it. And they made a new oh, one. Oh, is that right? I think this is the last time. Yeah, they ever it used does it. look a bit knackered. You're yeah, right. Little um, aquamarine console. Beautiful. That's right. Yeah, and and let's not forget the the stunt work uh, by action by Havoc. Uh, oh, um, <laughs> Which it, I mean, I I could give a flying font, but I mean, it is it is important. <laughs> At the time, that fall from that tower was the highest fall ever done by a British television program, I think, by a stuntman. Oh so wow! Really yeah. was, they were they were pushing boundaries to try to make this. You know, um, it's one of the things Dougie Canfield would would bring to the show throughout the years and this era period was to sort of really try to heighten the action and make it and make it not just people standing in rooms talking, but actually show do something a little something for the kids who are sort of maybe had slightly shorter yeah. attention spans. And weren't interested in allegories about Mother Earth. <laughs> you got to keep the kids hooked. And they have that yeah. really, um, really ragged chase sequence, which is really great. Um, oh, uh, in part three, yeah, yeah. And, and Pertwee um, hit uh, the stuntman uh, Alan Alan Chunce. Hit him with his car and really, really hurt him. He oh said it was the worst God. wound he'd ever seen. Apparently, <laughs> uh, and he, Pertwee felt so guilty about it that he got ill, and he couldn't film for. They, they slowed production down, and he actually bought. The stuntman's wife a gift to say sorry. Oh, bless! <laughs> and he was he was scared of heights as well. So doing that doing that work on top of the silos. Oh my god! The yeah. silos. No, yeah. I felt a bit you know litigious <laughs> looking at it. It was. He had to psych himself up for a little yeah, while. Yeah, I can imagine. Up, yeah, definitely. All right, Eric. If you if you'll indulge us, we've got a little a silly little sequence <laughs> we like to do. <laughs> By all means. Towards the end, towards the end, uh, where we talk about the many cliffhangers of the story and ask, are they? Cliffhangers, crackers, or clangers? <laughs> Here we go. Okay, so number one, uh, with the drill head about to overload, the Doctor and the Brigadier are confronted in the reactor room by the Slocum Primord mm. busts out of the door. And it's the, I guess it's, is it the monster monster reveal? It is the monster reveal, end of part one classic you've Doctor seen, monster reveal. Yeah, you've seen him change, but until not, not fully change. And this is what you, you saw th- a hand or you yeah. saw a close up, but yeah, here's the full thing. Yeah. So it's a cracker for me. I mean, it's the, it's a, it's a monster reveal. Yeah. It's pretty good. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of the Primords. <laughs> no, they're, but, they're kind of, it's like, why are they, what are they really doing there? I don't even, we don't have to get into that. But you know, it conforms to the whole thing. You know, monsters are green, says Terry, D- Terry Sticks and, uh, <laughs> all monsters. As a queen. <laughs> and and again at the end of part one we get the full reveal i think you know it's it's got to happen it's it's one of those formulate things that happens in a doctor who classic doctor who story yeah so crack it for me yeah sure i <laughs> I'm just you gotta you have to do this no no, no. <laughs> I, I i'm happy to, i'm happy to join in but uh cliffhangers in classic doctor who or something i've sort of i think maybe because i didn't grow up with them or whatever i'm, I'm oh. usually fairly indifferent to them as long as it's not terrible i sort of give it a pass <laughs> And so they're all going to be, you know, B pluses and up in my book in this story. Pretty much, I don't think there are, there are none in here that are terrible, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, mm. that's I think you're I right. Uh, number two, uh, Stallman switches off the power in the middle of the Doctor's console test, 
and Liz and the Brigadier arrive to see him and Bessie disappear all of a sudden. Yeah. To, 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 to who knows where. Uh, yeah, it's okay. This one's fine. There's a lot. There's, 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 there are seven, seven of these. Yeah. So <laughs> we have to be crackers. This one's pretty mild. I don't really care about this it's, one. It's a pass, but yeah, it's not a cracker. Yeah. Another soft pass from you, Eric? Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. And number three, at the end of episode three, in the fascist verse... The doctor mm, tries to I fix. Like yeah, sorry, I don't know. No, we should have been using that from the start. It's genius. <laughs> <Sorry>. Fascist twist. <laughs> <laughs> the doctor tries to fix the computer that, ben, um, but Benton, fascist Benton, tries to uh, threatens to shoot him, uh, and then there's a zoom crash into the doctor's face. Well, maybe it's just a picture of the doctor's face. Yeah. yeah. They haven't quite got to um, John Nathan Turner smash <laughs> levels yet. Yeah, this one's this one's this, Benton's not really scary. Even evil Benton's not really that scary. So oh, this think, one's a yeah, bit of a flop for me. John Levine's a cuddly old He's teddy a sweet bear. Guy. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I think it's again, it's a pass. It's fine. They had to put the ending somewhere. I think. Yeah, and that's yeah. probably what it is. Yeah, I don't, it's it's not earth shattering, but it happens, and it, you do forget about it quickly, so it's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's the, that's the mark of a of a fine clanger. Like if it's uh, if you can move on quickly and forget about it. Uh, number four, as they reach penetration zero, uh, fascist Stalman prepares to shoot the doctor at close range while the countdown slowly counts down to zero all around mm. them. And that's the Thunderbird countdown that yeah. I love. And this one's like it's all there. Like uh, the he keeps ordering the brigadier to shoot him. Yep. He runs he runs away for like, you know, 30 seconds of fruitless trying to escape and then Stalman picks up the gun and he really really wants to shoot the doctor. So you're like, this is going to happen. <laughs> Obviously it's not going to happen, but it's yeah. And then the countdown in the background and everyone's frozen. It's great. This is the this is correct. I think I think this is the second best cliffhanger in the story. Um I think it's really well it, largely because of the direction. It's very 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 well directed with that countdown and sort of sort of that feeling of being frozen while the inevitable is about to occur and you cannot do anything about it is very tense and it's a, I think that's a really good feeling. I agree. I can see how artificial and constructed it is, but I don't care. Oh, no, I yeah. actually think that this works because of the way in which, you know, as you say, Doug, um, Dougie Canfield puts it all together. Mm. Uh, you know, the that sort of building throughout um, the whole story to this point, which is that penetration through to the mantle, uh, I think it pays off, and I think this is yeah, definitely a yeah. cracker. Two minutes, one minute, thirty mm-hmm. seconds, and then right there, right at the end, perfect. Just as he's about to shoot him, the, the final countdown. Yeah, that's great. I love it. Um, all right, uh, number five in the in the <laughs> in the office, uh, fascist uh, team with the, and the doctor plan their escape as the primords smash through the sugar glass window. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it's. Uh, I don't know if it's some um, primord Benton. But he's just changed into a primord, so maybe it's him. Yeah, it could be him. Again, he's not really that scary, so <laughs> this one's a bit of a flop. <laughs> they're just, uh, yeah, they're just planning their escape, and the doctor's like, "I know how to get out of this. We- we'll be fine." And then smash. Yeah, look, I, I mean, it's it's probably an instance where maybe it's not filmed as well as it could have been. Um, I don't know whether it needed a close up or you know some sort of uh, reveal of the monster again, which I'll probably was already seen in part one. But yeah, it just feels a bit flat. It sort of comes out of nowhere as well, and yeah. that shock isn't really conveyed. It's just like okay, random thing, and then into the sting. Yeah, we've got the fire extinguishers. This is no big deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's just cut to the monster when you're not sure how to end an episode. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> That's it. That's it. <laughs> Um, and it's, I think it's just because it's really overshadowed by number six. Oh, uh, my God. After we see some scenes uh, meant to sort of convey 
like a localized and, and more widely spread destruction mm-hmm. of the world around yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, throughout episode six, yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, as the world is being destroyed around them, the, the, the team are in the hut and the doctor prepares to leave with his console, but he can't quite get the power right. And just uh, they open the doors and they see a bunch of um, pretty good BBC lava. <laughs> the lava tsunami? Yeah, slowly approaching the hut. And yeah, the, the, the color in the hut changes to red. And um, I think Petra, uh, yeah, yeah. Greg, because she freaks out and... Greg puts his arms around it because he's his sleaze to the end. Uh, and yeah, that's I, it's so good. It's just great. I, like uh, This is the best of the lot, isn't I it? I think so, yeah. I think the CSO works and you know we've seen before in mm. 1970s, Barry Litt produced Doctor Who. It doesn't necessarily yeah. always work. He loves CSO. But this really works. Uh, and, you know, that, that payoff, I suppose, of the entire episode where, as you say, it's seeded that something's coming. You know, the, the world is changing. It's becoming hotter. It's becoming mm. redder. And here's this lava tsunami just coming out them through this door uh, it's it's beautiful and it's different to most Doctor Who because it's not just happening locally it's the whole planet and it's really yeah. happening like yeah. it's this is it it's happening can't it's the stop end of it. the earth it's the end of the world yeah. and it, maybe the Doctor will get away but the rest of them are they're going to die. Yeah. yeah. I think I think it's exactly that bit that, you know, the cliffhanger itself is really powerful and great and well shot. And, and yes, definitely the best of the story. Um, but it's it's the knowing after the fact that that version of Greg, that Petra and that Liz, they die. Mm. They die there in that hut burned alive. Yeah. That, that, you know, that, that really like, oof, it really gives it weight. The doctor is lucky to get away with his life, but everyone else stays behind. And that's that's not a pleasant thought, but it's um, it gives the cliffhanger extra weight almost even after you've seen it, which is odd for a cliffhanger. That's so true. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we never see those characters again. Like, you know, they're, they're dead, as you say. Mm. It's a terrible tragedy and it affects us and it affects the doctor in part seven. Uh, yeah. So I, I think we can all agree that's the probably the, the best, <laughs> the best cracker. And then we can go to possibly the worst <laughs> clanger, which is the end of episode seven. BBC uh, crap joke. Yeah. BBC crap joke. So <laughs> Pompous. Self-opinionated idiot, I believe you said, Doctor? Yes, well, we, we don't want to bear a grudge for a few hasty words, do we? The, um, the Doctor's really rude to the Brigadier, ends up in a trash heap, and then almost, but doesn't, almost apologises <laughs> for insulting the Brigadier as Liz laughs them out. But he doesn't apologise. Do you <laughs> no, notice he doesn't. that? Yeah. <laughs> the worst part about this isn't the joke. The worst part about this is that we don't say goodbye to Liz. Yes. Well, there's just a lingering shot of her laughing that goes for a little awkwardly too long and then abruptly cuts to title. Yeah. But we never get to say goodbye. Yeah. Does that make it worse? It makes it it hurt more. I think so. This is a clang. Big clang. The biggest (laughs) clang. They were very fond of these really jokey, jokey endings in this sort of Mm -hmm. early era. I think they're almost unbearably terrible. Um, <laughs> oh, I, think, yeah. I think this is one of the worst, if only because it's so out of keeping with the tone of the rest of the story. Absolutely. Yeah, because it's, so, yeah. yeah, it's so serious and so horrifying. Yeah, and it's just sort of Liz going, oh, you too. It's just, yeah. <laughs> It's almost like an, an American show from the time where they would, or, or a sitcom from like the 80s and 90s, where they would all laugh and then it would freeze and the titles yeah. would come over the top. Canned laughter. Like, terrible. It's yeah. <laughs> all it's missing, the canned laughter. Yeah. Uh, this is terrible. What a terrible way to end what is an incredible classic Doctor Who story. Uh, and we've got, an, uh, yeah, a relatively new segment that we're, like, we're, we're trialling on Doctor Who, which is, um, what did Bridget think? Where we sit Bridget down to watch all seven episodes of this and get her, <laughs> and get her take on it. So let's go to that right now. Okay. What did Bridget think? Now it's my turn. All right. And we're here with Bridget to, to, to get her take on Inferno. The third Doctor story, uh, and uh, Bridget, I, why don't you just come right out and say it? What did you think of this? What did you think of Inferno? Inferno, 
is terrible. <laughs> it is so terrible. I was so bored. I, 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 there, there was some moments where I felt pain that I was so bored. Actual pain? Literal pain in my legs. Like I needed to run a marathon because I was like <laughs> tied down and I couldn't move <laughs> and I, I had to watch Inferno and yeah. There weren't any skivvies in this really, were there? Mm, no. There was, there, were, there was no hilarious fashioned. Well, there was moustaches and eye patches and good hair. There was some good hair. No, it wasn't enough. No, it wasn't, it wasn't enough. enough. It wasn't no. enough. So let's let's get down to it. So what did you think of the third Doctor, John Pertwee? I don't think you've ever... I'm not sure you've ever seen him before. No, this is my first experience of him. I thought he was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing was... Sh- so so what, about, what about him specifically didn't you like? I just thought he didn't... He didn't ever smile. Like, he didn't feel very nice. He wasn't very nice. Yeah, he doesn't have a lot of warmth. And he wasn't funny. And he, he wasn't, like, dad-like. He wasn't all the things I like. So you want a, a warm, funny dad-like doctor? Yes. That's your kind of doctor, right? That's everyone's kind of doctor. Yeah, he's kind of he's kind of like smug and smarmy and aloof. There, there are these mo- there are some moments where he's yeah. like, he's warm and you can see the heart of gold, but like not not that many times in this one. I don't no, think. No, he, he's he's not nice. I don't warm to him. What about uh, what about his friends? What about Liz, Doctor Liz Shaw? She got no characterization. Yeah. She was boring as. <laughs> well, because she was split between two. I guess everyone was split between... Oh, I liked Evil. Evil Liz? Evil Liz was good. I guess everyone was split between regular universe... Her wig was good, and Ashley. <laughs> there is a redeeming quality. And the fascist dimension. Sorry. The fascist dimension. Yeah, I like the fascist dimension. Yeah, you like you liked her hair better in the fascist dimension, right? Defo. But yeah, and you just liked her better because she got a bit more development in, that, yeah. in the fascist dimension. She went from being unquestioningly fascist yes. to uh, questioningly fascist. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and what about Brigadier slash Evil Brigadier? Evil Brigadier was pretty good. I liked when he got at the end where he gets all cowardly and like. I must say, by the end, I wasn't really. I just was excited about the end. <laughs> like I didn't really pay attention to anything he was doing because yeah, I was asleep. I feel like really. your your favorite part of the entire seven episodes, uh, which is a kind of a big ask to ask you to watch seven episodes, but I feel like your your favorite part was when the lava rolls towards the. The people in the fascist dimension and everyone is everyone dies. I yeah, think that was all... a pretty good part. Like the lava was like the blob. Have you ever seen the blob in those eighties movies? No. Oh, it was just so tacky. It was just like ah, lava. Oh my god. I mean, like it's such a good concept. The end of the world. They could have done so much. It was just so boring. Oh, why? <laughs> yeah, Don't I... make your partners watch this one. <laughs> They'll hate you. <laughs> it's it's not a good introduction to Doctor Who. I don't think because it is because so you'll fall boring. asleep because you'll fall asleep. Oh, well, well, I didn't fall asleep. I was in pain. Well, that's because there's so much shouting and and um, alarms going off all the time. Yeah, it's it's very actiony and not very story. Like I felt, and then there was this like, what are these werewolf creatures? Like, what are they even doing? Do they have a purpose? It's yeah, like, I know there's goo and I know Actually, there's monster, but they didn't need to be a monster. Watching it with you, I did kind of. I was kind of like, why? How are they connected to the? I was waiting them, waiting to link it all back at the end. Yeah. I was like, why are they here? They've got to be some. Like, are they trying to? take over the world did they orchestrate nah, this whole like thing they're just random animals? i don't know so yeah they're not connected yeah. but that, that you did make me realize he didn't that. care he's like i'm getting out of here i'm gonna fix my tardis that's what i mean about him he's not nice right. he did not care he was like i'm gonna use this atomic energy and get out of here <laughs> well, this world is doomed his central motivation is like to get off earth generally because he like he says like he's a shipwreck yeah. mariner or whatever yeah. So, yeah i don't like that motivation okay it's 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 not fun. <laughs> um, and there's there's a lot of not fun stuff. Like Stalman, I just found like what this time when I watched it with you, I just found him so irritating. He yeah. was just nasty for no reason. Well, like he 
why? What's happened to you? Why are you like that? Like, would... give us something. Otherwise, it's just like, oh, this guy. Gah. And and why, like, so the obsession with, like, gaining five hours or, like, gaining a few minutes here or gaining a few minutes that there? That would have been nice to know. He just... It was sloppy He's willing writing. to risk everyone's life sloppy, for, dudes. like, a few hours extra. Like... Inferno was terrible. There, <laughs> it, there's no rhyme and reason. Don't make your partners watch it. It sucks. <laughs> it was the worst episode of Doctor Who. I can't believe you made me watch it. Any... I feel... Annoyed. So that's pretty much Bridget's take. Any positives? Any takeaway positives? Anything you liked? I liked it when it finished. It was so <laughs> terrible. I can't. I know. Nothing redeeming? Well, it could have been so good. Like, I, I I do like the story. I like I like end of the world. Yeah. Like, kind did of, you, like, ideas. And I like... Did you like the bit where they slip sideways and where he slips sideways into another dimension? Yeah, I, lo- I like the, the sci-fi behind that, actually. I did like it when he slipped into another dimension. I like the idea that there's two parallel like universes and that I could be sitting here on this podcast right now and evil me could be sitting on a podcast saying how wonderful it was. Yes, maybe the fascist <laughs> dimension Bridget would love fascist Inferno. Fascist Bridget loves Inferno and she's just like, whoa, dude, that evil guy, he was so evil. I love him. Okay. Salmon, what a genius. He just wanted to go faster. I get it. So, uh, final thoughts? Terrible. Well, there you have it. Bridget, <laughs> alternate dimension Bridget loves yeah, Inferno. Boy. Loves Inferno, but in this dimension, Bridget's verdict is Inferno sucks. Yep. So, all right. That's what did Bridget think. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Are you going to give us a song at the end of this one? I won't do this song. <laughs> nice. I will throw it into an alternate dimension. And no song will happen. Okay, awesome. Evil Me does not write songs. <laughs> but Evil Me has a monobrow. <laughs> <laughs> and a moustache. Because moustaches are cool. <laughs> and an eye patch. And a yeah, weird man. wig. Yeah, dude. Well, there you have it. Um, that's, Bridget's, that's Bridget's verdict. Uh, back to you guys in the regular dimension. See you next time. Bye. All right, and uh, there you have it. <laughs> there you go. Awesome. Okay, uh, we always ask this question. I'm going to ask this question of Eric this time. Eric, hmm. why should we watch this? Why should anyone watch this? Well, I, I mean, anyone. I'm not sure why the Dalai Lama should watch it. But um, <laughs> if, you're, if you're interested in, I think, what uh, classic Doctor Who can be when it is both very serious and adult, but not overly reliant on like flashy action, which is sometimes the case with other season seven stories, where it sort of balances nicely the sort of uh, sort of just dramatic play almost elements of Doctor Who, where people are talking and debating ideas and arguing, and it's about characters, but also having really strong science fiction and fantasy thematic elements, as we talked about with the Gaia and the Conan Doyle. It's 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 a wonderful melding of what what uh, Doctor Who in this, this sort of late 60s, early 70s era was about, how it was moving and how it was changing from one type of show to another. If you've, I think, I think the best thing it can do is it actually, in some ways for me, uh, solidifies the things I like about the, the third Doctor that I think are often overshadowed in the rest of his time on the show where he becomes obsessed with gadgets and who-mobiles and things like that, <laughs> um, where he's more the sort of angry outcast space alien who is not happy being stuck with all these apes um, and yet cares very deeply about us. And that's such a wonderful dichotomy that is picked up again and again and again. And this is like one of the first stories that really puts that front and center. It's also just, you know, it moves at a great pace, you know, all those sort of things. But I think if you're thinking about what do I get about 
my understanding of, of Doctor Who as a, as a show and as a mythos from Inferno, I think it's that characterization of the Doctor first and foremost. Yeah, great th- point. Th- that that um, alien trapped on Earth and trying to get, a, get away is such a great base for them to work from and to write from, and it just shows in all the stories that use it. And uh, I just feel like it's like often we, we could pick a story that's kind of indicative or representative of the era. And I don't know, like this one is a little representative because it's got the characters and it's got a, a fun story, but it's um, it's also married to like a wild experiment. Well, like I said before, if you've got a parallel universe, yeah. you can do whatever you want. You know, you can destroy the whole planet. You can make wonderful characters and good characters super evil and super hammy. Um, yeah, uh, and I, I feel like uh, alternate universe stories are a little bit old hat now. Like they've been done, you know, evil versions of characters. I don't think done. it would have been back then. Though. No, yeah, but back then, like it's old hat now. But what I mean is back then, it would have been a little fresher, a yeah, lot fresher. Definitely. I think also t- t- on both of those points that you guys have made is is the idea that Doctor Who in, in season seven, the first um, of John Pertwee's five years in the role, is wildly experimental and it's ultimately an experiment that they won't take up they'll learn lessons from it and move on and make it a bit more cuddly and we saw i suppose the perfected formula of that way back when we did uh, terror of the autons but there's something wonderfully fresh a little bit edgy there's something incredibly bold about season seven and i don't think they get as clever in the other stories as they do with Inferno, with the way in which everything sort of comes together from the Horton and Dick script, the Camfield direction, mm. and, and really just this wonderful sense of urgency that, that's built throughout the entire... It's seven parts, but it doesn't yeah. feel that way. Yeah. And you were saying, bef- uh, saying before in our, in our Autons episode about how that when the next season, it's a little bit of a soft reboot. They bring mm-hmm. Joe in, they figure sure. out what makes the show good and what, and what they can repeat and like um, reliably deliver on. Yeah. And they do sort of settle into a bit more of a formula after this, a good formula. But I think you're right, like this season is a little bit wilder and a little, they're still finding their feet, but they really do this really great stuff. Like this is just such a... And it's difference, not in uniqueness, but it's difference from the rest of Pertwee's um, time makes it so wonderful. I think, yeah, season seven is a real high point in classic Doctor Who. And oh. Inferno is, is, is one of the chief reasons for that. Um, just evil brigadier. That's all, that's all you need. <laughs> He's just so fun to watch, man. That's so great. Okay, well, that's pretty much it for Inferno, I think. Yeah, I yeah. think so. Great. All right, so uh, here again on New to Who, we're going to be sharing the love as we do every month. Uh, our first pick, well, it has to be. It's Doctor Who, The Writer's Room. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> of course. As I say, a longtime favourite of mine, one of the very first Doctor Who episodes that I actually ever listened to, and uh, the testimony of which is the fact that I'm still listening to it. Mm-hmm. Um, Eric and Kyle do a wonderful job in going through the mechanics of the scripts and the writers and the the themes and the preoccupations and I suppose the discourses that, that underpin each of the eras um, that they form part of. And it's, it's, I can't recommend it highly enough. Doctor Who, The Writer's Room on Twitter at DWTWR, um, a real, real favorite of mine. So thank you, Eric. Thank you. That's very kind of you. <laughs> Uh, the other one we have to mention um, the Blue Box podcast with J.R. Southall and co if you haven't uh, subscribed to this one or have never heard of it before it really is one of the the biggest and best Doctor Mm. Who um, podcasts go check them out uh, J.R. Southall is also on Twitter at uh, J.R. underscore Southall. That's great. I love Blue Box because it's sort of free-flowing. And yeah. It not, not, doesn't feel overly edited. It just kind of runs with it and goes till the end. It's yeah, and, and the bunch of friends that they've got together and um, yeah, very clever people as well discussing Doctor Who, both classic and new. 
Okay, cool. So, uh, so what are we doing next time? Steve? Oh, okay. One so of your favorites. One of my favorites. So, a long time ago, way back in the Earthshock episode, I said that the Eric Sayward and Peter Davison era didn't need to be in the vein of Earthshock every week. Mm. That there was a counterbalance to that argument and a new approach that mm. maybe works better even with Davison's Doctor. And it is season 20's Enlightenment. Yeah. Wow, it's a beautiful, beautiful story. Yeah, it really and, is. And you're right; it's a bit of a like a bit of a break from the horror and the terror and the mm. endless gunfights. Yeah, it's just a, a little bit of a breather. It's beautiful. But more on that next time. time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we just wanted to say one more time. I've said it a million times, but thank you, Eric, so much for joining us. Uh, thank from- you. It has been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for getting up early and, um, and sticking with us. It really means a lot because uh, it would have been years ago that I started listening to The Writer's Room and to have you on our podcast is, uh, yeah, a great joy and pleasure. So thank you very much, Eric, for, for your years of, uh, of podcasting joy and for, for joining us on You To Who. Well, thank you. So you can buy the DVD of Inferno from BBC online or buy and download the episode from iTunes. You can follow New To Who on Twitter at New To Who Podcast. And also Facebook if you want, uh, or you, you can even email us at nudahoopodcast at gmail.com. Well, that would be lovely. <laughs> would be nice. We haven't received one for a while. <laughs> don't, uh, don't tell them that. <laughs> All our episodes can be found at www.nudahoo.com or on Apple iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you would like to hit subscribe or leave a review, please do so as these things really do help. Well, we hate goodbyes. So until next time, this has been Eric. I'm Stephen. And I'm Dan. See you next time. Be seeing you.